Our reading tonight is from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1 to chapter 13, verse 3. Now, about the gifts of the Spirit, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, somehow or other, you were influenced and led astray to dumb idols. Therefore, I want you to know that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everyone, it is the same God at work. Now, to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. To one, there is given through the Spirit a message of wisdom. To another, a message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by that one Spirit. To another, miraculous powers. To another, prophecy. To another, distinguishing between Spirits. To another, speaking in different kinds of tongues. And to still another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are the work of of one and the same Spirit. And he distributes them to each one just as he determines. Just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. And so the body is not made up of one part, but of many. Now if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, each one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts we think are less honourable we treat with special honour. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has put the body together, giving greater honour to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honoured, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. And God has placed in the church, first of all, apostles, second, prophets, third, teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, of helping, of guidance, and of different kinds of tongues. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, Do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? Now eagerly desire the greater gifts. And yet I will show you the most excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. 
This is God's word. Evening everybody again. Uh, We are still doing our tour of controversial issues through the book of 1 Corinthians. And tonight we're at spiritual gifts. Let's pray for God's help as we do so. Father God, we pray that you would give us uh, a willingness to listen to what your word says and an ability to filter out uh, some of the things that we may have been taught in the past, some of the things that we perhaps think. Father, please would we listen to you. Would we honour your spirit by listening to the words that he has spoken. Amen. Now, I guess that uh, lots of us will come to these chapters, 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, with questions. Uh, For some of us, there'll be theological questions. What on earth was prophecy? Uh, Thankfully, I've got another week to work that out. Um, So, (laughs) very pleased about that. Uh, We've got an engage. So, after the evening service next week, we'll be uh, looking at this question of uh, spiritual gifts. Just a chance for you to ask questions that are raised by by the next uh, two or three weeks. as we work our way through 1 Corinthians 12 to 14. But I guess for most of us, actually, the, the more pressing questions are not so much theological as personal. They're, why don't I have this gift? Or, if God loves me, why, why can't I do what they do? Uh, we worry, perhaps, if I don't speak in tongues, if I can't pray in tongues, am I missing out on a deep experience of God? They're, they're much more personal questions, I think, for most of us as we come to these chapters. If you're new to church things, wouldn't yet call yourself Christian, you probably just think it all sounds utterly weird. Um, Now, here's the important, in one sense you'd be right, um, but here's the important point. Christianity is a supernatural belief system. It is not a philosophy as if uh, Jesus is basically a great teacher. That's what he is. He's a teacher. Now, Christianity is an encounter with the living God. And at its heart, Christianity says that when you you put your trust in Jesus, when you turn to follow Jesus, you're not following the teachings of a long dead man. God, by his spirit, comes to live inside you. It is a supernatural belief system. That's quite a big claim. God, by his spirit, comes to live inside a human being. How on earth would you know that that has happened? You know, do people sort of glow? Do they get a halo like the medieval? Well, unless none of us here are Christians, that can't be right. Now, it's, uh, it's the US presidential elections. If you, unless you've been living under a rock, you'll know that. And at some point in every candidate's election campaign over there, they still have to sort of assert their Christian credentials. I think that... That's on the wane, but it still happens. They still all have to wave a Bible at some point. Uh, How do you tell if they're really just playing the crowd or genuinely a Christian? How do you tell with any of us? Well, in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, Paul explains how you can spot the genuine presence of the Spirit of God in a person and in a family of believers, in, in a church, a group of Christians. And he says it's this, it is a heart that trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ and a life that follows his example. A heart that trusts in Jesus as Lord and Saviour and a life that follows his example. In other words, a life that is not uh, marked by doing what I want, but a life marked by sacrificially serving others to build them up rather than selfishly showing off for my reputation. It's marked by sacrificially serving others to build them up rather than selfishly showing off 
Okay, you've got, a, you've got an outline. There's one deliberately mis- deliberate mistake that I sent through on the, the verse numbers, but you'll work that out. Um, other than that, it'll show you where we're going. Firstly, true spirituality is grounded in Christ. Um, now turn with me uh, back a page to the start of chapter 12, verse 1. Now about the gifts of the Spirit, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. Now if there's one thing the Corinthians thought they were well informed about, it was gifts of the Spirit. You turn up to their church meetings and it would have been quite something. People standing up with dramatic prophecies of, I know what you did last night. You know, <laughs> now you're really worried over there. Uh, there, were, there were people shouting out languages they'd never even learned before. There were dramatic healings. It was chaos, but it was blooming impressive stuff. You know, there was no question there was something going on. And you would have had no doubt, oh yeah, the Holy Spirit, if he's turned up anywhere, he's turned up in Corinth. So it's a bit of a slap in the face when Paul says, look, I need to explain about spiritual gifts to you so that you're not completely uninformed. It's like telling Gordon Ramsay, look, I just want to make sure, I just want to help you so that you can at least do toasted cheese. <laughs> Three Michelin stars, I know, but you know, I'd just like to make sure you understand the principles behind toasted cheese. Now, here's why they should not have been quite so quick to think they knew everything. Carry on, verse 2. You know that when you were pagans, somehow or other, you were influenced and led astray to dumb idols. Look, before you followed Jesus Christ, church at Corinth, you treated lumps of wood and stone that had been carved as if they were God. You bowed down to lumps of wood and stone. You have previous when it comes to being spiritually deceived. Don't be quite so quick to think, oh yeah, we know what's what. So Paul takes them back to basics and reminds them of the fundamentals. Verse 3. Therefore, I want you to know that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit. Very simply, he says, look, Romans 8, 9. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus Christ. And therefore, the acid test for genuine spirituality, the acid test for, for knowing whether or not someone genuinely has the Holy Spirit, is do they have a genuine, heartfelt confession born out in their lives that Jesus Christ is my Lord and Saviour? Impressive gifts, they, they count for nothing. Do they put their trust in Jesus Christ? That's the acid test. Now, at this point, it is very important to remember something that the Corinthians had clearly forgotten, and that is that as well as the Holy Spirit, there is a devil. And the devil is a liar and a deceiver. Wherever the Spirit of God is at work, the devil is not far behind trying to produce phony versions of the real thing to distract and discredit Christians so that we become confused and so that we wander away from a genuine experience of God into nonsense and nothing. And look, there were a couple of features of life at Corinth that made it pretty easy for Satan to deceive the church there. Uh, First, as we've seen again and again and again, they loved everything that was impressive and powerful. And so it was very easy to convince this church that wherever you see something flashy and impressive in church, that is where the Holy Spirit is at. And you know the Holy Spirit is in your church if flashy, impressive things are happening. Secondly, Corinth was full of, uh, of mystery religions and ecstatic, weird spiritual experiences. So again, it's very, very easy for them to believe that if, if, I, if I have some sort of ecstatic experience of praying in another worldly language, oh, that, that, that tells me I've got the Holy Spirit. I don't need to know anything else if that sort of stuff's going on. 
And so Paul has to correct them because he's worried that their pursuit of all that's impressive and all that's ecstatic will lead them to worship not Jesus Christ, but their own experiences. And will lead them to have a smug assurance that they are full of the Holy Spirit, when actually there is nothing of the Holy Spirit about their services at all. And so he says, look, don't celebrate your spiritual experiences, celebrate Jesus Christ. True spirituality is grounded in Jesus Christ. True spirituality is therefore cross shaped. It is about sacrificially loving others, not showing off in front of others. Jesus Christ, he suffered and he died to, well, to save people like you and me. And therefore, if I have the Spirit of God inside me, well, I'll pour myself out to serve people like you. Now, for all the similarities, London is not exactly the same as Corinth. And so it seems to me the devil's tactics in London will probably be a little bit different. Now, this chapter, though, addresses our our problems too, I think. You see, like Corinth, we, we love all that's impressive and powerful in London, but the chief rallying call of our culture is not, um, is not quite the same. The chief rallying call of our culture, it seems to me, is self-expression. The moral imperative to, in the words of those great philosophers at Disney, let it go. To, to do what I want to do, to be me. I have... A right, actually, I most of us put it more strongly. I have a duty to be myself, to express myself. And so spiritual gifts become not so much a vehicle for serving other people and building up the church, but for me seeking my own fulfillment. I remember giving a, a talk at a Christian union um, not so long ago, and a girl I was chatting to afterwards, she told me she'd just left her church when I asked her which church she was at. And she said, I need to be somewhere where I can exercise my gifts. Commitment to the people at the church really didn't factor in. Relationships, people who needed her at the church didn't matter. The most important thing, the thing that drove her decision was, I have a need to exercise my gifts. Now, it may be there were other things going on. It may be that uh, she was very justified in doing it. But it was just a phrase which on its own is a dangerously unspiritual way to think. So, let's look and, uh, and see what 1 Corinthians 12 have to teach us. Because I think actually we need these verses as much as the Corinthians did. London has its dangers and we have our warped thinking. And we need as much as them to see how the Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. We, as much as they do, need to see why on earth, in chapters all about the Holy Spirit and his powerful ministry, is the centre point a chapter teaching about love. Let's start. Second point. Spiritual gifts work unity through diversity. In one sense, this is the central bit of teaching, and then he works out implications afterwards. Uh, So verses 4 to 14 explain the purpose of spiritual gifts and then the implications come afterwards. Uh, The key statement, jump ahead, is verse 7. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. That's the goal, the end game, the why of spiritual gifts. God gave gifts to you and to me so that the whole church family would be built up. Not so that I would be fulfilled, but so that the church would be fulfilled, completed. In other words, he gifted me for you, and he gifted you for me. That's how it works. 
And the stress in the first couple of verses is on how there is a unity in the church in spite of the diversity of gifts, verses 4 to 6. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working. But in all of them and in everyone, it is the same God at work. The different gifts that God has given should not lead to a disunited church because it is the same God who gives those gifts. So the source is unified, even though the gifts are diverse. And do you notice that there's a, there's a subtle way he reinforces this message? You'll see three times he says uh, there are different gifts or different ways of serving. And three times he says there's one source. But do you notice that each time he mentions a different word for the source? Always it's God, but he uses three different words. Verse 4, the Spirit. Verse 5, the Lord, Jesus. Verse 6, God, the Father. If you wonder how on earth can different gifts being given to different people work to unity, the answer is modelled in the Trinity. God is Father, Son and Holy Spirit. But not three gods in spite of their different roles in the Trinity. One God in three persons because of their perfect unity and purpose. The glory of the Father. That's how it is with gifts of the Spirit as well. One source, God. One purpose, the building up of the church community, verse 7. We are stronger because of our diversity. And so verses 8 to 11, uh, God gives uh, various gifts to build up the church. Now it's clear that this is not an exhaustive list of the gifts because you get other lists in the New Testament. There's another one at the end of this chapter and then in Ephesians 4 and in 1 Peter 4 and in Romans 12. There are, there are a number of different gifts. So this is not exhaustive. It's just a, an illustrative list. And it's also hard to know what some of them mean because they're not defined here or elsewhere. Um, so we won't go into huge detail and we'll try to stick with what we do know. Verse 8. To one there is given through the Spirit a message of wisdom. What does that mean? It probably means preaching about the cross of Jesus. Hmm. That doesn't sound very exciting. We think, no, it must mean something a bit more. That's because you're all a bunch of blooming Corinthians. <laughs> think oh it should be it should be sort of miraculous but throughout the letter of 1 Corinthians the message of wisdom has been the preaching of the cross 1 18 to 25 2 1 to 2 2 6 and following throughout that's what it is so it's probably the preaching of the cross Uh, next the message of knowledge this uh, looking at chapter 14 25 is probably referring to a prophetic revelation that that just nails what is going on in somebody's life Uh, then faith. Uh, This isn't the faith that all Christians have. You can't be a Christian without faith. Faith just means trust in Jesus. But the New Testament does seem to indicate that there is a a particular gift of faith. I think of the um, George Muller, uh, the German missionary to England who in the 1800s did extraordinary work in Bristol. He fed, housed and schooled thousands and thousands of orphans. He was called the robber of the mean streets because he just took all the orphans and gave them wonderful life. And it cost millions, and he never asked a single person for the money. God gave him the faith to just pray for it, and the money came in. That's not ordinary faith. That's extraordinary faith. I think that's what's being spoken of here. Uh, Then, uh, gifts of healing. There is no promise in the Bible that if you trust in Jesus, all your sicknesses will go. After all, Christians die in this age. But it does seem that uh, God sometimes allows the light of the new creation to break through. And we get these 
inexplicable hints, reminders that God is a God of life and one day there'll be perfect health as people experience healing that medicine and the human body's healing processes just can't explain. Uh, next, miraculous, uh, miraculous powers. Now, this is not an everyday occurrence in the New Testament. We have this view in our minds, I think, that you know, in New Testament times, there's just like crazy stuff happening all the time. Actually, it doesn't seem to be the case. And when you read through the New Testament, there were lots of miracles at the start of the ministry of Jesus and lots of miracles at the start of the ministry of the apostles and then actually relatively few later on. But the the pattern does seem to continue in church history that wherever the gospel is breaking new ground, there are reports of of dramatic miracles. So if you have a longing to see miracles, don't sit in church and pray for them. Go and become a missionary to a frontier place where no one's heard of Jesus. And uh, who knows what might happen, but you may well see some miracles. Um, I'm serious. That seems to be the pattern in the New Testament. Um, But God is an amazing God who can do what he likes. Uh, Prophecy. Now we'll say more about this uh, next week. But it does seem that uh, prophecy is a, uh, is a non-authoritative teaching. So it's not authoritative. It's different from Old Testament prophecy, which was, this is the word of God, no questions. So this sort of prophecy that Paul writes about had to be weighed, as we'll see in chapter 14. The elders have to get together and decide, do we think this is genuine? Uh, are we sure this is what God is saying? Uh, then... Um, uh, distinguishing between spirits. Now, this was hugely important at Corinth, where there's all sorts going on. Uh, you, you know, are they acting under the power of the Holy Spirit? Are they possessed by the devil, or are they just um, faking it? I mean, who knows? And so, you need someone who has this gift of discernment to be able to tell the church. And then, uh, and then, still to another, speaking in different kinds of tongues, and to another, the interpretation of tongues. So tongues is only mentioned in the book of Acts, and then in these couple of chapters in uh, 1 Corinthians. And literally, it just means languages. And in Acts 2, it's the ability to speak foreign languages, to proclaim the gospel, a big, massive hint to the church. Stop sitting on your behinds in the pews in Jerusalem and get out to the rest of the world and tell them about Jesus. But there are some indications also in 1 Corinthians that it may have um, also at times involved some sort of heavenly language. Um, But whatever, people couldn't understand it by their natural power. And so you need interpreters to translate because otherwise it's pointless. Somebody just babbling in a way that nobody understands. Verse 11. All these are the work of one and the same spirit and he distributes them to each one just as he determines. So a whole variety of gifts, all given to the church, but all given for one purpose, to build up the church. Verse 12, just as the body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free. And we were all given the one spirit to drink. And so the body is not made up of one part, but of many. So although the the gifts are diverse, the source is the same. And therefore, it is the church, we are not organisms, each individual Christian. We are organs that are part of an organism. We are part of the body, not the body ourselves. We should not view ourselves as autonomous and self-contained but as dependent and relational. That's the truth of Christians. So God has designed you like a Lego brick. In one sense, you're complete in and of yourself, but you really can't fulfill your purpose as a Lego brick on your own. (laughs) Or to be a Christian is to be like a footballer. You can 
you know, kick a ball on your own, but you're not really fulfilled as a footballer until you're playing football with other people, with a team. In fact, you can stretch the analogy further. You need different sorts of players on the team. You need defenders and attackers and a goalkeeper. You need a variety. The problem with blooming Arsene Wenger is he, all he ever does is buy strikers, and so Arsenal has no defence and never wins. Anyway, um, I'm just glad to get that off my chest. Uh, you... <laughs> Like a healthy team, you need a variety of different kinds of players. We're designed to be a a body, all different and yet working together for the whole. Now it is true though that when you have different gifts, as you know in a team, we can end up disunited and bickering about who's more important, who's better. It is a danger when we have different gifts that actually they don't work to unity, but to disunity, to pride and insecurity. And so Paul teaches in verses 15 to 26 against those two dangers. Firstly, we need you, so don't feel inferior, verses 15 to 20. Now, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts of the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. Sounds rather ridiculous, and it is meant to sound rather ridiculous. You see, it seems that for the Corinthians... If you didn't have certain high-profile gifts, and in particular the gift of tongues, you didn't matter. You just didn't matter. And if you didn't have those gifts, you were made to feel like a second-class citizen in church. And those who did have these upfront impressive gifts, they thought they were a higher class of Christian, a more spiritual being. But that is completely wrong. Just as the human body needs all its various parts to function properly, so the church needs all its members working together, committed to serve one another, if it is to grow healthy and to function properly. Because all the parts are needed, no one gift, no one person can be despised as unimportant. I mean, think of the human body. Uh, Eyeballs are, you know, as far as I know, to my untutored mind, about the most complex and impressive part of the human body. But it wouldn't work if the whole body was eyeballs. I mean, how would I eat a pizza if instead of teeth I had eyeballs? And if I can't eat pizza, life has no meaning for me. You get the point. You need a variety of, of parts, members in the body. Now, I think we probably assume we're not the sort of church that idolizes and elevates the gift of tongues. The real danger for us is in the way that we talk about those who teach the Bible. And that is a danger. And we must never, ever, ever give the impression that just because somebody teaches the Bible, just because God chose to give them that gift, that they're somehow more important than somebody else. It's nonsense. But I wonder if we don't actually idolize the gift of tongues sometimes. Let me tell you why. I've had a number of people ask me, am I not missing out because I don't have the gift of tongues? But I have never had somebody come up to me and say, am I not missing out because I don't seem to have the gift of celibacy or the gift of administration? You see, there are certain gifts that we might not think we elevate, but actually we, we kind of think we might be missing out if we don't have them, but we never think we might be missing out if I don't have the gift of great generosity with my money. That sounds like that could be awkward. Uh, 
we must be careful. We must be careful. Don't elevate and don't discount any gifts. I wonder if the thing that actually makes most of us feel most inferior is not um, absence of any one particular gift, but the sense that, frankly, there are people here who can do the only things I can do a whole lot better than me. And so, what's, what's the point in me? Well, verses 15 to 20 encourage those of us who feel unspiritual or ungifted. Even if you feel unappreciated and a lesser sort of Christian, God does not view you that way. Even if you feel your gifts are mundane and a little bit ordinary, even if lots of other people at church can do the stuff you do much better than you, God is sovereign, he is wise and he is loving and he gave you the gifts that you have and he put you here. And whether you realise it or not, the other Christians at this church, they need you. Otherwise, God wouldn't have put you here. God has designed this church to need you and to need your gifts. Don't feel inferior. God has gifted you and God wants you serving here. The flip side in verses 21 to 26 is you need us, so don't feel superior. Just as some felt inferior because they didn't have the impressive gifts, those who had the impressive, upfront, flashy gifts looked down on other people and just devalued them, which is a wicked way to behave. Verse 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. The head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty. While our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. It is absolutely ridiculous. It is stupid. It is mind-bogglingly wicked to take pride in the gifts we have. God gave them to us. How can I take pride in, in something that was given? Just like salvation is given. That word charismatic uh, that is used here, the charismata, the gift, it is a word that means a gift you don't deserve, a gift of grace. So how on earth can any of us feel proud about Things we didn't earn, we didn't create, but we were given on a plate. Don't be proud. And besides, as these verses point out, sometimes it is the unimpressive and the overlooked that is crucial. You've all got pens in front of you. Get out your pens and write down what you think is the most impressive building in London. Write down what you think is the most impressive building in London. I get you all to shout it out, but it might sound like another bit of 1 Corinthians. And anyway, the, uh, um, so just write down. It doesn't take long, seriously. Yeah, there's some architects here. They're writing the names of ugly 1960s tower blocks that apparently have, <laughs> if you only understood, you'd know how impressive they really are. Um, you're all wrong. <laughs> I, I bet you're actually, you're all wrong. The most impressive building in London is not St. Paul's Cathedral. It's not the Shard, the Gherkin, any of these. 
the most impressive building in London actually is the sewers. There was a thing in 1858, there was a real thing. A real thing called, yeah, some people looking very smug. Oh, yeah, sorry. I, I, I can see where this is going. Uh, there, was a, there was a real thing in London in 1858 called the Great Stink. If you think the tube carriages smell in the morning, back then sewer just ran down the streets and straight into the Thames. Walking on water was no miracle back then because there were plenty of dead cats and all sorts of other things and you could pretty much walk on the surface of the Thames. And in response to the great stink, uh, um, the grandson of, um, of Protestants who were kicked out of France, Huguenots, um, a guy called Joseph Bazalget, was tasked with building a sewage system for London. And he was brilliant, brilliant engineer. And he built over the next 16 years 1,182 miles of main sewerage uh, and about over 100,000 miles of smaller sewage pipes all over London. It was such a fine feat of engineering that in spite of the enormous population growth we've seen since then, it is only that because we all, have, we all produce so much more water through power showers and whatever that, it's, that they're having to upgrade the sewage system now, 150 years later. It's an incredible feat of engineering. But the original brick sewage system he designed still works and functions perfectly. Yet none of us see it. You don't get tourists queuing up to take pictures of it. You can't. And yet, there is probably no more important building, an impressive building in all of London. It's the reason that cholera stopped killing people. It's the reason that uh, there are living things now in the River Thames. They may have three heads, but... (laughs) (laughs) But actually, no, there there are living things now in the Thames. All because of a man who built a sewage system. We have no idea how important that is. We don't see it. And church is often like that. We see the big impressive things and yet this church would fall apart if it wasn't for an awful lot of people doing an awful lot of unimpressive but highly important things that God has gifted them at. Remember Joseph Bazalget if you feel a bit useless. Remember him if you feel quite important. We need our sewers. <laughs> sometimes we feel like sewers, I think. And sometimes, uh, sometimes that seems morally appropriate for what we feel like. But the truth is that no matter how rubbish we feel about the, the gifts God has given us, remember that. God has given you the gifts and God sees you as important. Remember that if you feel important, if you think you've been greatly gifted by God. Frankly, if St. Paul's fell down tomorrow, London would be fine. If the sewers stopped working, the whole place would fall apart. Finally, Paul seems to slightly undo everything he said, doesn't he, in these, uh, in these last verses. Verse 27. Now you are part of the body of Christ, and each one of you is part of it. You are the body of Christ, and each one of you is part of it. And God has placed in the church, first of all, apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, of helping, of guidance, or administration, and of different kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? Now, eagerly desire the greater gifts. 
he is not saying some gifts matter more to God. That would be a total contradiction of everything he said. He's just saying that some gifts are more foundational for the life of the church. Without the apostles, you have no way of, of connecting with Jesus Christ. So, hang on. How can you have a sort of hierarchy, though, of gifts and it not lead to pride and division? I just don't... The answer is in chapter 13. Now, we're going to come back to this chapter a little bit later in the year. So in one sense, we're going to skip over it and go straight to chapter 14 next week. But for now, just look at the first three verses. And yet I will show you the most excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I'm nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Why is love so important? Why is the central chapter in Paul's teaching on evidence of the life, evidence of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church, why is the central chapter all about love? Because you can't fake sacrificial love. You can fake miracles. The Bible talks about false prophets and false miracles. But you can't fake sacrificial love. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus Christ. And therefore, when the Holy Spirit is active and at work in us, the evidence will be sacrificial love like Christ, pouring ourselves out to serve other people. You see, love is the, the ligament, if you like, It's the connective tissue that holds this body together in spite of all our differences. And love is the litmus test. It's the thing that proves above anything else the presence of Jesus Christ. Because you can't can't do love in a one-off. You can prophesy or show tongues in a one-off show. You can't show sacrificial Christ-like love in a one-off. It's seen in the unseen moments. It's seen over time. It's seen in commitment. It's seen away from the stage in the nitty-gritty of daily life. It's proved in practical decisions that put the needs of others ahead of my wants and my desires. It's not flashy or impressive. It doesn't draw a crowd, but God sees it as beautiful because God the Father loves his son Jesus and it reminds him of Jesus when he sees us live like that. You see evidence of the, of the Spirit when people arrive here early because they want to, to help. You see evidence of the Spirit when people... Well, tonight I'm not just going to chat to my old friends. I want to try and welcome others. I want to try and look out for others. You hear the Holy Spirit at work when fantastically gifted musicians rein it in because they don't want us amazed at their ability to play. They want us encouraged in our ability to praise our Saviour. You taste the Holy Spirit as kind people here take meals round for those who are in real need. You experience the Holy Spirit any time people in this church are prompted to lovingly serve other people. So what gifts should I pray for? How should I come to this question of uh, of spiritual gifts? The question is actually, what gift would I pray for if the main thing driving me was I love the people here as much as I love me? 
Actually, given uh, that gifts are given to build up the church, the focus shouldn't so much be on what gifts should I pray for. The, the focus is really not one of my gifts, but what needs doing. What needs doing. And one day you and I will stand before God. If you trust in Christ, we're totally forgiven. But we will give an account for what we've done with the gifts he's given us, the, the spiritual gifts, the, the time, the money, the friendships, the opportunities. We'll give an account to him of what we have done with those things. What matters to him is, have I used all he's given me to serve and build up those around me? Commit to God and to others your abilities and your gifts. Whether you've got great or meager talents, commit to serve other people. We are most happy and most fulfilled when we are most poured out in serving other people. It's the way it works in God's world. We're designed and created in the image of a God who pours himself out for others. And you and I will find our greatest fulfillment when we do that. And as we do that, we'll know the Holy Spirit at work in our lives and at work in our church. And that will be a glorious thing. Let's pray. Father God, we pray that you would give us a deep conviction that we are needed here and that we need the others here. Father, we pray that we would be a church in which your spirit is powerfully at work because people follow the Lord Jesus in serving one another. Help us, Father, not to, not to come to be served, but to serve. And Father, we do pray that you would be pleased by what you see here. And we pray that for each of us, your spirit would, would be evident in our love and our service of others in a way which reminds you of your son, the Lord Jesus. Amen.